Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. This episode of Military Wife Life is proudly brought to you by Defence Bank. Serving those who protect us, Defence Bank have the largest on-base branch network with 37 locations around Australia. They have Army, Air Force and Navy covered. To find your closest branch, visit defencebank.com.au. It could happen to you or someone you know. It could be happening to you or someone you know. According to recent stats, domestic violence affects one in six women. One in four women have experienced emotional abuse. One in five women have experienced sexual violence. It affects people of all ages and from all backgrounds. And while domestic violence doesn't just happen to women, men can also experience it. The focus of this episode will be women and military partners in particular. In today's episode, I'll speak with with former spouse Sarah, who has recently left a 15-year abusive relationship. First, just as a warning, this episode contains discussion of domestic violence. So if anything comes up for you, you can call counselling service Open Arms day or night on 1800 011 046. Or if you are in an abusive relationship and need help, you can call 1800 Respect, which offers support for people impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse. But first, let's talk to domestic violence case manager and military spouse, Jess, about what exactly domestic violence is. From a definition standpoint, domestic violence is a type of gendered violence, which means that it is perpetrated overwhelmingly from one gender to another, that being men perpetrating violence against women. And domestic violence is actions that cause fear with the aim of controlling a person. So that can look really different depending on the relationship and what the perpetrator uses as tactics. So that can look physical. It can also be emotional, psychological, verbal, social, economic technological, spiritual, sexual, and then there's gaslighting. So there are so many forms of domestic violence. And much like Jess just mentioned, former spouse Sarah says the domestic violence she experienced wasn't physical. Initially, I thought this was, it was such an exciting relationship. Like, you know, what he did for a living was exciting and new. So yeah, I guess definitely it was just being young was a big factor of me accepting a lot of the things that I did. It was definitely the yelling, the, I guess, emotional controlling aspect. So, you know, trying to turn the situation around back on me when I was trying to help. And then, yeah, so a lot of those things where you were made to feel bad for trying to stand up for yourself or try and find a solution to the problem that came from him, that existed from him, basically. Did he ever get physical? He never got physical, except maybe like, you know, once when he was really drunk, but that was like years back. And I guess it's just one of those ones where he had just sort of pushed me against the door when I was trying to prevent him from leaving because he was completely inebriated. And so then did he blame that on you because he was just trying to get past or? He claimed it never happened when he came to the next day. So it was like constantly fighting, yelling, you know, the damage to property, damage to things him actually leaving the house without telling me where or when he was coming back. So that did leave quite a bit of PTSD to myself where, you know, I'd be like, oh my God, is he going to actually come back? 
or will he end up being found on the side of the road? A lot of the things that were said were things that would turn back around on me. So then I would be like, oh, okay, maybe it is a little bit of my fault as well. And then by that time, when you kind of reflect and think about it, the fight had already been over and then you're already in that makeup stage and you kind of just go, okay, well, we're you know in a better place now. So let's just forget about it and enjoy this play nice moment. And I guess sometimes people can be unaware that that's what they're actually going through and that what's happening to them is in fact domestic violence. Yeah, definitely. So I guess it is just that perpetrators often start really small. So they might call you a name or shove you or something really, really small that you might see as really small or just a little argument. But then the next thing, they're isolating you from your friends, then they might hit you and it won't shock you because they've slowly let up with all these other little bits that when they hit you it doesn't seem like a huge leap always starts with a form of control and that can that can seem really endearing at the start like I don't want you to see your friends I just want to spend time with you if you loved me you'd just spend time with me and in the first few months it's all about that infatuation so sometimes you just don't see it and he might say things that you know I just want to spend time with you alone and eventually he might start accusing you of cheating on him and demanding that you check in with him when you go to the grocery and it's because he misses you it's not because he's controlling you and I guess they're the the red flags at the start that why why are you going through my phone or why do I need to check on with you and that is made so much harder in this day and age because of things like find my iPhone and you know all these apps that you know that you can track other people with and you know perpetrators and the world I guess is becoming much more technologically smart so they can put apps on your phone to track you and you won't even know they're there. I've had some of my clients that have had trackers, really small trackers that you used to be able to buy from, you know, Dick Smith and JB Hi-Fi, like hidden inside the plastic of their pram. So the police, they um, tore apart her house, they tore apart her car, they could not figure out how he knew where she was all the time. So wherever she went, he knew where she was. And it's those sorts of things that... Sometimes they're really advanced, but sometimes that's just where it starts. Sometimes it can happen over 25 years. Sometimes that can happen in a week. And that's why it can really creep up on you. Like you mentioned, those little things kind of build up to the bigger things. But because you've had that lead in, it's really hard to see it because you're living it. Yeah, exactly. And that isn't just with DV, you know, that's that's when you're really close to someone. It's hard to see their faults when you love them and when you want to see the best in them so it's sometimes yeah it really does just creep up on you and if you have been separated either through deployment or living separated or however your relationship looks it can sometimes go unnoticed for a really long time not only for yourself but for people on the outside of the relationship. Sarah walks us through the early signs of domestic violence in her relationship with her ex-partner. We met very, very early on when I got out of high school and we married and we have kids together. So it was quite a very long relationship that we had. Looking back, it could have even been when we first met. So he was very jealous in nature. So even people talking to me randomly on the street or people randomly talking to me at a club, he would actually get quite possessive and confrontational towards that person. So signs that I thought, oh, wow, like, you know, he must really like me because he gets so jealous. Oh, that's so cute. Looking back now, I'm like, those were definitely red flags 
flags that first started happening when we were first together. And then there were also massive anger management issues. So back then, when we even right at the start, when we would have fights, he would throw and break things. And it was hard for him to sort of control or rein that anger in, which usually resulted in something being broken. Case manager Jess says perpetrators of domestic violence against women often have an underlying commonality. You will find every DV relationship there is at the core a disrespect for women and their place in the world, whether that's something that they've learned themselves, whether that's something they've learned from their families. But it is about discounting that patriarchal view that women belong at home cooking, doing what they're told, and I bring in the money. So here's $100 to last you a fortnight, and here's the rest of my money to do whatever it is I need to do. And that is really common. That's generally where it starts. That's where it starts that you have your place and I have mine and my place is bigger, larger, more important than yours. I just had to let him do what made him happy, even if it came to a cost of me and my time. Because then if I had tried to say something about like, oh, I really need you to cut back on that so you can spend time with family, he would then see it as me trying to manipulate him to control his movements. Case manager Jess explains that domestic violence isn't about the perpetrator having anger issues. It's much more than that. Quite often, perpetrators will say to their spouses that, you know, they have anger issues and they're going to take anger management counselling. And what I can say is that it's not anger issues because I often ask when women tell me that, that he has anger issues, I say to them, has he ever hit or abused or manipulated anybody that isn't you? And quite often, no, he's, he's amazing in front of other people. So it's not anger issues. His issue is about you, controlling you and your it. I guess maybe you could get to the point where you kind of have excuses in regards to, oh, well, he's just settling back into home or he's been away deployed and been in stressful situations or um, it's just because you know, he's not used to being around me or his family and he just needs to get used to that. Like you can kind of play it off with different excuses in regard to some of the situations that we might find ourselves in specific to military spouses. All the things that you just said I've heard before from my clients, specifically military spouses, and you can. So you can excuse it with he has PTSD, you know, and all those things are real, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's that the perpetrator has said, you know, I've experienced this or, you know, just give me a break. I've had a really hard time. I've been at war and you've been at home by yourself doing nothing, you know, and I guess that's what gaslighting is and psychological abuse. That's convincing your spouse that what they are saying is crazy and getting them to the point that they they believe that. And that can be really common. Sarah says her ex-partner would make her feel like she was the one that needed help. I couldn't talk to him about it. We were interstate at the time, so we're away from family and a lot of our support systems. So I remember feeling quite hopeless um, because it was just the kids and I. I couldn't fix him, I guess, and every time I 
approached the subject, but I thought that he had some mental health issues. He would sort of turn it back on me and say that I was the one with mental health issues, saying that he had mental health issues. So it became kind of like this like ping pong verbal match where he would basically guilt me for telling him that he was sick. And I was like, well, I'm not saying that you're sick. I just feel like that you need to reach out to services just because I do feel like that he had depression. But for him, dealing with the depression was usually drinking. Case manager Jess says moving and the nature of the military lifestyle can sometimes put domestic violence victims in danger. I love being a military spouse. I love our community and I love moving and experiencing new things. But being a military spouse, being a part of this community can be really all-encompassing. Like it controls where we live. It controls where we can work. You know, it is. it does have a lot of things around it that control us and isolate us already. And personally for me, that's made a hell of a lot easier by me having a really supportive and loving husband that doesn't control me. So doing new postings is exciting for us. We make it an adventure for us and our kids. But for women who are in a really controlling relationship, that can mean that they're pulled out of a job where perhaps their safety net was. The one safe thing that they had, they might have had people that knew about the DV and were supportive. And then they're pulled out of that and pulled you know, away from their friends, away from their family, away from anything that was safe. And that can be really dangerous. Sarah says she may never have left her ex-partner if they hadn't have posted back to their home state where she had friends and family close by. I probably wouldn't have awoken. I probably would have just dealt with the, the whole cycle of events over and over again. And it wasn't until I felt more safe in my home state that I knew that I had the support there that I kind of came to the realisation of, oh, actually, no, I don't have to put up with this. I also remember one day, just a random day, I just remember having this clarity of thought and I was like, I don't actually love him anymore. And then I thought, wow, like, that's quite scary and confronting. But at the same time, I was like, if I don't love him, then what exactly am I trying to hold on to this for? For a lot of women in a DV situation, they'll attempt to leave more than once before permanently doing so. Can you walk us through, I guess, what some of the emotions and thoughts and feelings a victim goes through that prevents them from seeking help or leaving? Statistically, it takes eight times for a woman to permanently leave. And a lot of that has to do with the guilt and shame of it, of admitting that you're a victim of domestic violence. And, you know, those outward opinions of how did you let this happen? Why didn't you leave? And there's also the cycle of violence. So the cycle of violence is in a relationship, everything is really good. You're in a honeymoon period and, you know, everything is fantastic. It's what everybody wants. And then the spouse will eventually learn their partner's triggers, the way they move their body when things are starting to go bad. And that's called sort of the, the eggshell. So that's when they're walking, walking in eggshells, they know something's going to happen. And then it goes around to explosion. And that's when the abuse occurs, whatever the incident is. And then that goes back around to honeymoon and he's so sorry he'll never do it again and that cycle of violence is something that keeps women in relationships because they know it will get good again so yes he'll hit me but it will get better and sometimes that cycle of violence can happen three times in one day sometimes once a month sometimes once a year but it can also be about 
isolation. And that's for spouses that are not only non-military, but even more so for military spouses because we move so often. So they often, you know, whenever I move to a new posting, every single one of my friends is connected to my husband because generally at every posting, he knows somebody. And then I'm introduced to his wife and then we become friends. And that would be really isolating in the fact that you wouldn't want to tell that one friend you have that your husband is hurting you because they're all connected, you know? Another one is wanting to just keep the family together, stay with your pets, often in shelters and places where we help women flee, they don't allow pets. Another one is love. You just love him. You don't want to leave. And the biggest one is fear. So a lot of the time, if you leave, I will kill you and I will kill the children. I'll kill your family. I'll kill your pets. And if it's gotten to the point where he's putting his hands around your neck, it's not a huge leap for you to imagine he's capable of that. So all of those things together, if you can just imagine, you know, being a newly posted spouse, for example, then dealing with, you know, daily assaults and threats to your life, having your pets hurt, your children hurt. How could you even fathom leaving like in the sense that how could you get your mind together to do that like I could just imagine it would take a lot to get out the door. Sarah says after an incident she would often pretend nothing had happened. I mostly pretended that it didn't happen because like I said once you got into that nice makeup stage you kind of just go on with life until it basically happened again and I guess towards the end of the relationship I started to sort of stand up for myself a little bit more, which usually culminated in like the fights being drawn out longer and happening more frequently, that sort of stuff. So I guess because you were standing up for yourself and you would bite back, did that escalate the incidents when another one would happen? Like, would it get worse as they went on because he was feeling like he was losing that control over you because you were fighting back? Maybe so, but I think it was in conjunction with a whole lot of other factors. So by that stage, we had kids. So I felt that I had, you know, something to fight for. And also because with kids, like that's when like his mental health kind of really deteriorated more, but whether or not that was also due to having kids, but also having more deployments under his belt, you know, work stresses definitely was a combination of things that his mental health did break down more, which did lead to more fights. You mentioned that he he did go away on deployments and have a build-up of, I guess, mental health issues because of that as well. What was he like when he would leave for deployment? Because obviously he was then going to be away from the home and, you know, not there being able to watch what you're doing. And, you know, you mentioned he was jealous if you spoke to someone else. Like what was he like in the lead up to going away for a deployment and then when he was away? I would say that we were fine on the lead up to going away. You know, we'd be in the sort of like honeymoon stage, like clinging to each other, um, enjoying each other's company but then once he was away literally every time there would be claims that I was cheating on him I'd get emails I'd get phone calls asking where I am so yeah it was quite hard when he was away. Sarah says that after years and years of her ex-partner using alcohol to deal with his depression she was pushed to her limit. I get quite passionate and I do fight back when we do fight. So I would also, you know, I would fight back in the form of like yelling as well. So these fights would culminate in this big, huge yelling match. So I think because of that, and then I guess for him, dealing with the depression was usually drinking. And then by that stage, I had pretty much had enough. You know, I guess I was a bit 
contemptuous of him drinking to his face, which probably didn't help the situation. But at that stage, I kind of have felt that I had reached my limit and that if he didn't go seek help, then I didn't know if we were going to be able to continue down even further. Case manager Jess explains what we should do if someone we know is experiencing domestic violence and confides in us. I think that quite often the first person to find out is the police and that's because either you've called them or a neighbour has if they can hear something. And this is why training our police in DV is so important because no matter who the woman goes to first, that very first experience is going to dictate the rest of their DV journey. So if you go to a police or you go to a friend or whoever it is you choose to go to and they come back at you with judgment, why would you put yourself in that situation again? So that's going to keep you in there long enough, in that relationship long enough until you get the energy to try and flee again. But if your friend comes to you, the most important thing you can do is listen. And that that is so much of my job is just being quiet and listening because often they don't want solutions. The women know how to get out. They know what they have to do. They just have to talk it out with somebody. So all you need to do is listen. And then if they ask you a question, answer them. As long as it's safe to, you can offer them, you know, you can come and stay with me. But really the most important thing to do is listen to them and believe them. You know, I've heard some stories that sound like they are straight out of Hollywood and they are always true. So you just just believe them no, no matter what it is. Listen and believe. That does depend though. So if your friend comes to you and she has marks around her neck, you know, if there's serious violence, then it is your responsibility to call the police because there's a life at risk. You shouldn't hesitate to do that. If she never wants to speak to you again, then, you know, that's something that, you know, you will need to work through. But her life is at risk and you need to do what you can to keep her safe. But if it's not life-threatening, so, you know, there is physical violence, there is all these sorts of violence, but she is telling you that she isn't afraid for her life and she's begging you not to say anything, then that really is up to you whether or not you want to do that. But you need, you do need to know that, that, that the police will action that. They'll go knock on the door, whether he's home or not, and they may even ask to speak to him about it and that is putting her at risk so you know that's why maybe have a really open conversation with them about what you can do to help and sometimes that is just a safety word so one of my clients if she texts me the word school which if he were to read he would think that that's relevant because I support them engaging with schools then I will call triple zero for her so sometimes it's just about safety planning at that stage how far away were you posted away from your family and from I guess, the people that you would want to be around when you're going through something like that? Quite far away, where we were posted, we only had military friends. And then so because they were military friends, you couldn't really chat to them about it. I guess I'm quite lucky in the fact that I've got a very good friend support system that I can call at any time during the day and night. So there were just many, many phone calls made to friends that kind of knew the sort of like situation that I was in or had recognised it a long time beforehand and had basically said to me, like, you know, we're always here to support you no matter what, which was absolutely cannot thank them enough. Having a big support in place is essential and it will be very tough, I guess, to not have that support. Wouldn't know how, you know, I would have gotten through those dark times without that support. I only confided in about one or two friends about it. So yeah, there was definitely one friend that 
older than I. She was also a military background and like knowing his behaviors, like everyone knows about his jumper. But what, you know, this friend had said was like, okay, well, you know, this is a little bit more, nor- like, you know, more than usual. But me being me was like, oh no, that's just him. Like, you know, we, we can work through this. But she was always very open, like never judged me for staying, I guess, and was just always there to talk to without being judgmental. So what you need, you know, without someone just going, you just need to leave him like that because it's always quite overwhelming to face that prospect. Was there anything, I guess, specific to defence life that prevented you from leaving? Like, was there a point where, you know, you were kind of shielding other people from finding out because of, you know, him being in defence and, you know, once a couple of people know, the whole sort of community knows sort of thing? Like, I guess not wanting to jeopardise his job, I guess. As you know, there's like this constant underlying message throughout military life that, you know, you know what you get into when you marry or when you're with a defence personnel, defence always comes first. And I guess that's sort of like deeply ingrained into you. So despite leaving, I, or despite not leaving, I guess, I, did, I just didn't want his career to be affected. So how did you think his career would be affected? It's hard because I, I know that mental health is still such a big topic within defence. And then whether or not, you know, like diagnosis or depression or anxiety will lead to, to setbacks. I'm not sure, or like, you know, prevention of promotions or prevention of going on deployments, which is essentially what they want as defence personnel. So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of ramifications that, you know, you get told of, but you're not actually sure what would happen. What do you think he was like in his work situation and and within, I guess, the defence setting? Was he ever aggressive or did he ever show any of that side of himself at work that you know of? Toward the end, I know that, like, you know, when we were a bit more open and he had started doing some counselling, I know that it came as a blindside to work when he was requesting time to go to these appointments. So before then, like, no one knew, I think, he was quite quite, you know, up to date with his work. He was always sort of like stressed out with work, I guess. So yeah, I don't think many people knew in a professional capacity that he was struggling back at home. What was it that actually pushed him to go and get some help in the end? Was it that you were going to leave or how did that sort of happen? I think I had said to him that I wanted to leave because I couldn't really deal with him not accepting help and after like a long time he finally relented but he made it that we also had to do marriage counselling together because it was his way of saying well if I'm going it's not just because of me it's because of you too but I was more than happy to do that as well because you know like I was like okay well you know let's really give it a really good shot let's give it all we've got and if it's going to marriage counselling let's do it together. So I guess you went to the marriage counselling and um, you were doing that. Did it lessen incidents or did it make things good for a while? Um, what sort of led to you then deciding to leave? It did make a difference for a bit because you know we were finding that we were communicating a lot better however through counseling I did find what my bottom line was in terms of what I would accept in a relationship and I guess once it was crossed I decided that enough was enough. What was the first step and how did you go about saying okay I'm leaving like how did that sort of all work? Well we were back in our home state 
by the stage and I had reached that stage and I had said to him like that this isn't working that we're just going to break up so I was we were in the process of talking out how the separation was going to occur you know I was going to go to Centrelink the next couple of days to sort of figure out how much payment I was going to get all that sort of jazz but then the drinking started you know inevitably and then a lot of events sort of built up that culminated with the police um, attending the house and then civil DVO was sort of placed on him by the police not me because at that stage I was still in my fairyland I was no I'm not in a DV situation <laughs> but they recognized it straight away so they actually put a DV on him. Case manager Jess talks us through the process of getting police involved. So you can go to the police and make a report about abuse and you can request that the police take no action. You just want the statement on record and some of the time the police will be all right with that, most of the time really. But if there is threat to life, significant assaults or rape, often the police will take it out of your hands and they will take that statement and they will do something about it. And that's generally when the police prosecutor will go forward and you as the spouse won't have any control over that. But I often find that women find some relief in that because, yes, they've made a statement, but they don't want it to go to court. They didn't want this done. It's the police doing it. And they can deflect that. You know, they can go, oh, you know, it wasn't me. It wasn't me as a safety mechanism, even if they're 100% supportive of it. There's also sort of intervention order. Some people call it AVOs, an apprehended violence order, or protection orders. It's called different things in different states, but there's different levels of that. So a basic intervention order is something that you can get from the police that essentially says on it this perpetrator will not assault threaten or harm this person and you can still live together nothing changes there's just a piece of paper that is keeping him in line because if he steps out of that line the woman can take that to the police and have him reprimanded for that then there is a more significant intervention order and that's called a no contact and that is the ones where it says you cannot come within 100 meters you cannot live together you cannot make no contact and depending on the level of abuse the children can also be put on that intervention order which is an added risk because he can't see his children or you make zero contact and also with basic and more severe intervention orders they always have on them that the perpetrator cannot handle a weapon of any kind so if you're a military member and it is a part of your job to do weapons training or you know even I don't know about every other service but they have yearly weapons training you can't do that so you would have to tell your chain of command that you can't do that because otherwise you're breaking the law and that can be an added stressor for military spouses that doesn't exist for other women that you actually are impacting their job and that they can't pick up a weapon which depending on the service depending on your job is a significant part of their job and you will impact that and that's something to think about but then again if that member doesn't tell their chain of command they Mm. still just go along with basic intervention orders if they choose not to tell their CEO you know then they probably could keep going but if it is a significant intervention order that means it's gone to court so significant intervention orders will go to court without the member or the victim actually having to be there uh, sometimes the magistrate will just look at it and make yep this is bad enough intervention order and then that will pop up the police will generally make contact with the defense force to ensure that they know about that 
So if the member's job is artillery or, you know, does involve a weapon and they've got that intervention order or that order in place, does that then mean that they are discharged or how does that work? So they're generally put on a desk and they do everything but touch a weapon. And if you are in artillery or, and that isn't just guns, so that's why it's a little bit different for military. It's firearms. So it is anything, any kind of weapon. And it also means that you're no longer deployable, which can be culturally getting deployed is something that most members want to do. They want to serve their country. It's all they train for. And then they can no longer do that. They can no longer do training. Do they get to the point where they get past the being furious and actually feel shame because they're sitting at a desk because of, you know, something that they've done to their partner? I can imagine there would absolutely be be shame, but I don't think it would be shame that they hurt their partner. I think it would be shame that their mates know that they hurt their partner. And because, you know, of that really deeply ingrained mateship, you know, they always have each other's back. And if your mates know that you hit a woman, you just couldn't come back from that. I would expect maybe, you know, they work through it as in, oh, she's just crazy or it didn't yeah. happen like the way that she said, or, you know, yeah. it's just going over the top and yeah. I just got to wait it out or whatever their Absolutely. reasoning is. Absolutely. So recently she wasn't my client, but there was another woman that a colleague of mine worked with and she moved out of the home and then the entire, all the people in his section came and helped him move out. So you can imagine for a spouse, 25 men rocking up at your house, you know, supporting their friend, helping them move out, how terrifying that would be. But it it comes back to that mateship, like, you know, and that will always be there. That's something that sometimes as spouses we don't have and that's what's great about you know the community that you've created is that we know that you know there's a few hundred of us there if we need it because it can be so isolating and as soon as they go into a squadron they've got you know this ready-made family this ready-made mateship that they're brought into and that that anger it doesn't just go quite often it can stay and it can get worse intervention orders used to not be able to cross over states so if you got posted you would have to apply for a new intervention order every time you did and they had one year limit now they're unlimited and they can cross borders so it would be up to the spouse to drop the intervention order so that her husband could do his job so if she chose not to drop that intervention order he's not going to be able to be active in his job and it it could lead to discharge so often so often intervention orders are dropped when the woman has originally worked so hard to get it on but if he's about to lose his job and you know that that is going to make your life so much more awful and dangerous like if he's lost his job and he has no money coming in and him being in the military is you know for all of the members all of our husbands it's so much a part of their lives and if that's gone he has one focus and that focus is going to be you and you're not going to want that and that's that's why intervention orders quite often get dropped because sometimes they, they're amazing at keeping women safe and sometimes they're not. Sarah says after things escalated and the police got involved, she needed to move out in a hurry. I had a couple of days just sort of like get some stuff together but not able to quite get everything out of the house. So a lot of it sort of had to stay in the house until I was able to get removalists into move because I still hadn't found a place to stay obviously it happened quite suddenly and I had nowhere to move the things. 
Hey Military Wife Life community, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the Defence Bank Foundation and the great work they're doing in the defence community. The foundation raises funds to support serving and ex-serving ADF members living with injuries or illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2019, the sole beneficiary of the foundation was the Defence Community Dogs Program, a specialised dog training program which rescues abandoned dogs and trains them through correctional services. 40 service dogs have been trained and given to veterans since the Defence Bank Foundation was established. The program gives dogs, inmates and veterans a second chance at life. How were the kids feeling with all of this? How were they feeling about just suddenly leaving? Did they know that mum and dad were separating? Like how did it work with the kids? My youngest had no idea because she was quite young at that stage. Um, my oldest sort of, even though he was young, he kind of knew what was happening. He said that, you know, daddy made you sad and that's why we're going away. So explaining to him, but, you know, daddy still loves you very much and that he would see you when he can, but he was happy enough to that answer. Case manager Jess says spouses can often find it hard to leave a domestic violence situation due to not being financially independent. When you leave, whether you're a military spouse or not, if you don't have an income, you need to apply for Centrelink, which for anybody is absolutely awful. So if you are a single woman and you don't have children yet, you would be entitled to New Start, which is about $550 a fortnight. And I mean, that's rent. Like, so, so you're not going to be able to get a house. You're not going to be able to afford to rent a house. If you have children, then you can get parenting payment with family tax benefit. And that is a bit more, but it's, it's usually around the $1,200 to $1,500 mark, depending how many children you have. But living on that in a fortnight with children and paying rent and doing everything yourself is a huge barrier. Finances is a huge barrier because the world costs money. So leaving is incredibly hard financially. If someone is in an abusive relationship and they aren't ready to get professional or reach out for help or put it on the record or go that next step, are there things that they can do in the meantime to prepare them for when they do leave or take that next step? Like, are there things that, you know, maybe they should be putting a little bit of money aside? Like you mentioned, having a safe word, connecting with at least one person that know like what can they do in the background so that when it did come time to contact the police or take that next step or leave they have some things kind of sorted out so if i'm working with a woman and she hasn't left yet one of the things that you know we do talk about saving money but quite often that's it's just not possible because he has oversight over 100 of the money you can try and set up a separate account and maybe put aside a little bit of money every fortnight if you can making sure that statements do not come to your email do not go to your home address but the money aspect is incredibly difficult especially if there's financial abuse another thing that i see if women can do is keep a journal of the abuse and everything that you do to keep yourself safe so whether that's on your phone if he doesn't go through your phone or you have something that you can hide so this is something that before you do make sure you can safely do so a lot of my clients keep a journal of you know he hit me here i called police this is what happened sometimes there's no action every interaction you have and that can really help with court down the road if 
you need it. And another one I get them to do is get all your important documents, you know, birth certificates, passports, anything that's important and put it in one spot. So if you need to run and run quickly, you can grab it and you've got it all because once you leave, he's more likely to burn it or to blackmail you to get it and make a safety plan with somebody, whether it's a social worker like me, it's a friend, it's a neighbor, do something. So if something goes wrong, there's someone knowing you're trying to get out. Sarah says the police being called was a blessing in disguise. The police did me a favour with that DVO, even though I hadn't recognised it myself, because with that Centrelink, like there were some grants as well, some financial hardship grants were given quite quickly. So they were able to help me out a lot more with that piece of paper. But even with that piece of paper, I still had to you know, move in with my parents for a little bit. And also it still took me about three to four weeks to actually get my own place. There were so many phone calls that you had to, to make and so many times we had to wait in line and Centrelink and on top of all this, I was still studying, like deferring was not an option for me. So I just had to sort of like kind of quickly get back onto my own two feet and then just keep going. Yeah. Of course, people in that situation are not necessarily going to have that emotional energy to make those phone calls to go over what mm. they've just been through or are going through or, you know, label it as DV so they can access the specific stuff for DV, there would be people that would not even know where to go. And that's with you having your parents you could go to. Like it mind boggles me how much I needed to make phone calls myself. Like I was like, I'm the first person to admit that I'm very well supported by family and friends here. Without them, I don't know how people would be able to do that. And that's just to access the basic thing. Like there's so much paperwork that also needs to be done. There's so much jargon that you have to sort of like read through. So it is definitely very confronting, but you know, the services are there. I think I just kind of wished it was a little bit more streamlined. Aside from, I guess, the supports that we've just spoken about, people can also contact their bank or financial institution for assistance in a lot of cases. And they might not know that they can access support through their bank. So if you can get a letter from a domestic violence case manager and you can give it to them, they can, I think it's about a thousand or $1,500 that they'll give to you. And it's not a loan, it's a grant. So it's yours. You don't have to pay it back. And often, you know, that can be like a, a bond to getting a house. That can be a huge help. And that's why I really recommend getting in contact with a DB service almost as soon as you leave, because there are so many things that you can access. And some of them are only available in the first fortnight that you leave. So so for example, Centrelink has crisis payments. And if you access them within the first seven to 10 days of leaving, then you can get that money. If not, then you're not, you're not eligible. So it's really important to try and reach out as soon as you can. And how did it work with the removal with defence? Because does the member have to approve that or did you contact base or like how did it work with that side of things? Everything has to be done through the member. So yeah, it, we had to still meet up face to face for him to sign paperwork. So at that stage, I guess, I think for my own safety, I guess, I always had someone with me. So like a friend would come with me to get these papers signed. Because, I mean, it's all well and good to say, well, you know, just move your stuff out without getting defence involved. But in situations like that, maybe obviously you don't necessarily want to go back to the house to move your stuff out. You don't necessarily have the 
the funds to afford hiring your own moving company to get your things out you know what are your options in that situation did you think about other options or did you just think okay i just need to get this done and then it's it's over with yeah i think i just said i need to get this done and then it's over with i know now that there are other services where removal lists will help victims of dv to actually move out of their house i believe there is one in every state I'm not entirely sure on that, but if I had known that, then I would probably have done that instead. Of course, that situation is also dependent on the member and your ex-partner being open to lodging that paperwork, signing that paperwork, allowing you to take stuff like without putting up a fight. That's exactly right. And then also for the trust to still be there, I guess, of not touching this stuff, which you know, eventually you know, he did and it got things got a little bit ugly for a little while, but then kind of resorted itself out. So did you have to go back to the home to, I guess, do an inventory of what you needed to come out? Like how did that work with probably not wanting to go back into that situation or see him? Again, brought a friend with me, organised a time when, you know, he knew that I was coming back to the house, but he made sure that he was not there. He was quite amicable at that stage, which was nice, but I know that it's not always that case. Case manager Jess says a lot of spouses avoid seeking help through defence. You know, the biggest one is that most of us live in DHA or are getting rent assistance. And that is completely connected to our spouse. We wouldn't have it without them. So they have to, if we want to get a removal, so with defence, you are entitled to a removal, the spouse is to, even if it's a normal separation, you know, it's something that can be worked out. And yeah, it needs to be signed off by the member. So if he doesn't want you to leave, he doesn't want the military to know that you're no longer together. He just won't sign off and you can get in contact with his CO. You can you can go around him. But if you're living in fear and he's going to hurt you or your children if you do that, you're just you're trapped, really. And that's why almost, well, actually all of the spouses I've ever worked with have chosen to go through non-military ways of fleeing because the control and the oversight from the member, it's too much and it's not safe. He notified defence that you guys were separating and that you were then entitled to that move and that sort of thing. Did defence know about the DVO or any of that side of things or, you know, what was happening with his work situation and with them knowing what was going on? Everyone knew (laughs) at that stage with sort of what had happened and I guess the defence really rallied around him which is great because it, it had seemed to him that, you know, like he wasn't being supported, I guess, as well beforehand. But sort of like the downside is like, you know, once you are cut off from the defence member, like once you separated from the defence member, like you're pretty much like left on your own. As much as they try to say they're supportive, I felt that it was the defence member that they are more protective of. So other than the removals, there were no other services, I guess that really supported me in terms of defence. So no check-ins by anyone? There was the DCO that checked in maybe once or twice, but even then, as sympathetic as she was to my situation and as much as she wanted to help, like there was nothing that she could really offer me other than a phone call, which kind of didn't really help me. And what do you think would have been good in that situation? What do you think could have been offered that would have made a difference? Maybe like, rather than being like, oh, well, I can see that you're not okay, but I'm sorry you're not feeling okay, but my hands are tied to, why don't you check in with these services? Like sort of like more 
more of a well-lit area of who to contact or who to call for help. I guess maybe admitting that they aren't DV specialists and, and that's okay and they aren't specialists in people separating, but here are some resources that might be good or here is you know, something that you can access in this situation. Yeah. And I, I get that they wouldn't know sometimes either as well, but yeah, just in terms of different, there really wasn't much support there. <laughs> yeah. Like you mentioned that everyone knew. So did DCO know when they were calling you or when you were having interaction with them that you were separating because of the DVO or because of an incident? Yeah, they all knew. And I'm pretty sure they reached out to me. But again, I think when I explained the situations of what I needed, and I can't even tell you what I needed at this stage, I was like, um, they couldn't give me a clear cut answer of how to access certain things. The Defence Family and Domestic Violence Strategy, which was released for 2017 to 2022, sets out the defence's objectives and key areas of focus and principles. And it aims to ensure the safety of those subjected to or affected by the use of family and domestic violence, provide appropriate immediate supports and referral to professional services, Mm -hmm. provide defence personnel with the skills, knowledge and confidence to identify people subjected to and affected by family and domestic violence and respond effectively to their needs, promote accurate understanding of family and domestic violence and its impact on the workplace. Can you talk to us about whether you feel like what I've just read out is appropriate and whether there is more that could be done within defence? I think that there needs to be more training. So from what I understand, I think that that members have to do a, I think it's a half day training or something like that. And it's given by DCO who aren't domestic violence specialists. So, you know, it's, I guess that's that mentality of keeping it all inside, keeping it within the defence community. And it just doesn't work like that, you know, um, because you need to bring in the whole community. You need to bring in the, the DV services and the police and have this really big conversation that, you know, it's not just about defence members. It's not just about men, but, you know, it's everybody, it's everybody's business. And I know that, I think in some cases, a lot of these things that are put out, they're just words. It's really about challenging the beliefs of the managers and the CEOs, the bosses, wherever it is you work, whether it's military or not, and getting them to understand the intricacies of that, especially with defence life. You mentioned that like it's a double-edged sword with him being in defence. It was good that everyone, I guess, found out about it and he was able to access support on base or within defence because of people finding out about it or because he he notified his chain of command. But, you know, obviously the double-edged sword is that they then rally around him. But did he get any support for his mental health and did you see improvements on that side of things? You know, I don't hold any ill wishes against him. I'm very glad that he got the support and, you know, from his peers that he thought he didn't have beforehand. But um, in terms of accessing, you know, like services afterwards, I'm not sure because, you know, like he certainly wasn't going to tell me. And then when I had asked, you know, his superiors that had initially reached out to me to see how I was doing, they then, like within days later of contacting me, were basically like, we cannot release that information to you. It was just one of those things that I just had to sort of take their word that he was seeking help or he wasn't. I just don't know. From your perspective, you've, you've got kids to think about and, you know possible visits and you know I guess you want to gauge what where his mental health is at you know you've left that situation and you've taken the kids with you to your parents house and you know that's it you've left how do you know that he hasn't 
taken a turn for the worse or his mental health has escalated or, you know, what's happening with him. That's exactly right. There were concerns, but, you know, legal reasons, you still had to be able to let them have access to the kids as well. So I couldn't withhold the kids from him. But, you know, like he had agreed that when he did see the kids that he always had to have someone that I trusted. So, you know, his sisters, his parents, all that sort of stuff. But then after a while, you kind of just have to let that go and let them have their, you know, alone time. Case manager Jess talks us through what happens when you have kids and you decide to separate. Really nothing can happen legally unless one of you instigate it. So quite often my clients will take the children and that will be all right for a while. If this is if there's no intervention order and there's no police intervention, nothing, they just choose to leave. Quite often the perpetrators will say, you know, you can't legally take them. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to report them missing. And all that's going to do is peeve off the police. So those sorts of threats, they have very little weight. If he wants to take you to family court, he can. We don't often suggest that women instigate family court. And obviously that is very general advice that depends on the type of abuse, but it's an incredibly expensive and stressful thing to do. So you can start mediation. There's so many different things that you can do. I'd recommend maybe having an anonymous chat to a lawyer and just getting some advice there. How does it work with your ex-partner's postings and deployments and being kids and to make things easier, we did go through a mediator to go through parenting plans. Um, so that is something that I highly, highly suggest. You both kind of know are on the same page or what to expect with postings and all that sort of stuff. He is currently interstate at the moment from us, but it just means that I have to be a little bit flexible with when he is able to come and see the kids. So we try to co-parent the best we can. Obviously, there will always be miscommunication. And I guess it's the same old, like, you know, he doesn't like something that I say that there's always going to be a communication breakdown where he tends to withhold something. But for now, I just basically try and deal with it as it comes. Looking back, do you wish that you had have left sooner? I don't think I was ready to leave sooner. And it was really hard because, you know, you've, you've known this person for like nearly two decades. Like you've got this future that you've always imagined and you've cast yourself as like, you know, the role of like the defence wife, defence family. And it was just very hard to let all of that go suddenly. I can't say that I wish I had left earlier because I guess then, you know, when I left, when I did, I knew exactly that I was doing the right thing, that I wouldn't have any regrets doing it. So if someone is in an abusive relationship and they are ready to access help or report it and take that next step, how do they go about doing that? So you can go straight to the police and make a report. And generally most police stations will have a specialist domestic violence unit. But sometimes you don't get the response you want from the police because police aren't there to counsel you. They're not there to listen to your feelings. They care about the evidence and they'll get you to take a statement that is incredibly cold, can really be traumatising. So Another thing you should do is Google your local DV service and you can just give them an anonymous call. And I chat to women daily anonymously. I don't know anything about them. I just listen to them. But one of the things you could do, it's called 1-800-RESPECT. It's a national number that has social workers like myself that specialize in domestic violence and sexual assault. And it's just like Lifeline. It's completely anonymous. It's just that they have more training around DV and they can put you onto numbers. They can give you advice or they could just listen. With regards to defense spouses, 
there's something called SAFE. So it's the Special Accommodation for Emergency Scheme and it's available for ADF members and their spouses and it's when they can't remain in the home due to a threat. So that's something that you can access through the Defence Family Hotline and they can put you in a motel for I think up to 10 to 14 days and they can support you to get you know the, the member essentially locked on base so he can't leave base and it gives you a chance to get out safely. Why do you think um, people don't report domestic violence? Throughout all of this, I never recognised that I was in a DV situation until the breakup, really. So I basically was, I only just realised this coming out of the relationship. So it wasn't ever a, I felt unsafe with him. Like I did, but I didn't. Like it was kind of like a head stuck in the sand. I didn't want to acknowledge it. Looking back, it definitely were massive, massive red flags that I could not tell were there. And even now, I don't like to say that I was in a DV relationship. You know, I do because that was what it was, but it's still hard to say sometimes. And usually I don't know if it's because I'm like, oh no, like I can't believe I was stupid enough not to recognise it. But it's not even that. I think we always want to be the best in the person that we have chosen to spend, you know, our life with. You still kind of want to believe that, I don't know, you don't want to just label them as this bad person, but at the same time, like, all this stuff also did happen. There's still a lot of shame and stigma around it. And I think not a lot of people want to put themselves in sort of like a victim's role. You know, you want to be the, you know, like, I can get through this, I'm I'm strong, I'm independent. But at the same time, like, it's okay to recognise that these things are happening and they're usually outside of your control. I think as beautiful defence life is, like, sometimes there is still that, that underlying sort of current of defence comes first and you basically follow what they say and then families and partners are often not really catered or considered for. Like, I think recently it has changed, which is good, but in terms of support, like, sometimes you just don't have that support and you just don't know who to talk to and who to reach out to. So I do find that it would be harder for defence um, partner to, to actually speak out about it. We've spoken a lot about DV victims and all that they go through and and what they can do to access support and, and what they would be feeling. On the other side, is all hope lost for the DV perpetrator or are there ways that they can move forward and change their behaviours and actually seek programs or professional help to actually move forward from that behaviour and not go on to continue that cycle? Hope isn't all lost. It really depends how ingrained it is. You know, like for example, the, the woman who's been experiencing abuse for 27 years, I wouldn't say hope is lost, but habits are very deeply ingrained in that relationship and you need to be very aware that that's probably not going to change he is not going to change but some men absolutely the first step is just acknowledging that you're doing something wrong and that's with anything really ndv acknowledge that what i've done isn't right and i need to change and you know go to counseling or chat to your mate do something there's men's line did see recently that it's going national and you can give them a call you can give 1-800 respect a call and just talk it out with them and you can get support this isn't a life if you're not choosing it then it doesn't need to be your life. 
Does he recognise that your relationship had domestic violence within it? I don't believe so, no. I honestly don't think so. It's just one of those things that I kind of have to accept. What would you say to someone who might be in an abusive relationship? To be true to yourself, as cliche as that sounds, but you know, if you have a voice in you at the moment that you know is questioning where you are currently, like, you know, is life supposed to be this hard? Like, essentially, no, it's not. If you do take the step, it is going to be hard, but it eventually leads to you being much happier. And to do that, you'll need support. So, like, you know, reach out to your friends. A lot of my friends that I didn't initially reach out to were horrified, I guess, because I masked it very well. Definitely let people in because... um, you will need that help. You've been to Helen back and I mean, this was over a long period of time and, you know, you've relatively only just sort of left that situation, but what yeah. is your life like now? And what do you see for you and your kids in the future? Well, definitely a new career change, <laughs> uh, which is excellent. I'm about to finish a degree which will propel me into a new career, which I'm very excited about. The kids are also happily settled and life is definitely better because I don't have to worry so much about, you know, walking on eggshells. And so are you accessing any sort of ongoing support services for yourself or for the kids or, you know, counselling or anything like that to help, I guess, process what you've been through? I had uh, gone through Open Arms, um, the counselling services through them. They have been fantastic, but I don't feel that I need them anymore at this stage, but I know that if I do, I can always go back. And did you find that for your situation, even though they're not domestic violence specific, that they were understanding and um, could help you in that way? So if anyone, I guess, going through anything similar, wanted to access that support while they're going through it, they may not necessarily have left. Would that be a service that you would recommend? Absolutely. A hundred percent. They basically are able to sort of like just someone that you can talk to that has no judgment. They help you make a sense of your thoughts, I guess, because it can be quite confusing when you are going through the, you know, should I leave? Should I not? Like all those emotional turmoil that you might be facing, they really help you sort of regain your footing within that and sort of clarify, you know, what your thoughts are on what your priorities and what your boundaries are going to be. If there are any spouses that are listening, maybe just need to talk to someone or ask for further support or be directed in the right direction or just need to be heard, is there a way of them contacting you or or reaching out for support? Generally, there's 1-800-RESPECT. They're the best port of call because they they will know where to put you next. These guys are national and they'll be able to point you in the right direction. What would be your hope for anyone going through something similar or thinking of leaving or may have just recently left a situation similar. To recognise that they are independent, that they are strong, that they will be able to get through it and that they will be a lot happier if they leave that situation. 